They call me Doctor Sleep. Oh, I thought you were just testing the mic. No, oh, I, I was. I was going. Okay. <laughs> we're Sorry. just gonna leave that. Oh well, fine. <laughs> it's the t- sung to the tune of Doctor Worm. Uh, greetings, friends. Welcome to Critically Acclaimed, the film review show where I make a lot of weird faux pas. And Collide! A, yeah. Thank you. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for uh, IGN. I uh, have a piece in TV Guide recently. I write for whoever will, whoever will have me. Have him. Hmm. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, and uh, it's, it's going to be a big week. I'm critically acclaimed because there's stuff out. And we review it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be reviewing such films as Doctor Sleep, Midway, Marriage Story, Honey Boy, and, of course, mm. The Mistletoe Secret. Um, William hates me or yes. himself, perhaps both? Uh, no, just Whitney. Okay. To, to clarify. Okay. To clarify. Yeah. Uh, because he's watching Hallmark Christmas movies. Again. He's going to continue to do so. Uh, every week that I can yeah. do it. At least one. Um, it's biz- it's yeah. busy and I'm trying to cram them all in. You know, you can just buy a sage bundle and flagellate yourself for a lot cheaper. <laughs> uh, there's actually a... I have a history with the mm. franchise, <laughs> uh, the specific mistletoe franchise, actually, oh, that we'll talk no. about later in the show. Um, so that's going on. Uh, another thing we're going to doing uh, real fast, I just want to give everyone a heads up. Uh, a couple of minor uh, changes. Uh, first off, our Patreon, still going, mm-hmm. uh, but the address has changed. It is now patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, as opposed to critic acclaim, which was odd and confusing and for some reason was giving us RSS trouble. So critically acclaimed network, that's where you want to go. If you're already a subscriber, we thank you, of course, and you shouldn't have to change anything except maybe your RSS feed. Uh, yeah. And uh, if you are subscribed to the network, you're now getting all of our shows uh, just in one big chunk rather than having to subscribe to various different ones. Yes, so, as well. Um, and uh, there's been, I I'm, might be doing even more streamlining from there, but uh, there's good stuff coming. Uh, also, we're going to be doing uh, a little something because we wanted to add more polls to the Patreon. Uh, so for $1 and up, uh, you all you currently get to pick an episode of Cancel Too Soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a poll up right now to help us pick a recently canceled sci-fi show to review by the end of the month. But we also know that you guys like a lot of like our list shows and stuff like that. So we're going to do one list show every month. And you get to pick the topic. Mm-hmm. So for $1 and up on our Patreon page, you get to help decide uh, if Whitney and I are going to do a list of, depending on the topic, our favorite slash or our picks for the best. Uh, film noirs, sci-fi action movies, sequels, or the best films of the 1990s. So uh, you up, should be able to... Up, up to you. Pick one of those and we'll, we'll come up with a listicle and give you a bunch of recommendations. You'll be able to pick that up soon and uh, uh, head on over, pull it up, have some fun, and mm. uh, we'll do that episode for you before the end of the month. And it'll be really exciting. And it's all on you, all on our Patreon mm. subscribers. But uh, we have a lot of movies to review and we just kind of want to get going. So why don't we get going? Let's do it. Let's go with the big winner of the weekend, Midway. Yeah, people didn't see that one coming. No, I I kind of expected Dr. Sleep to be a big deal, and nobody cared. It was a little odd. I went on KCRW Press Play this Uh last week. Um, It's a radio show. It's... Wonderful Madeline Brand host said she's great. I was on with a great Christy mm. Lemire. And was, we were reviewing all of the new releases of the week. Mm. 
And uh, you know what we decided to skip because it didn't seem interesting? Mm-hmm. Midway, which ended up winning, <laughs> winning the damn week. Oh, shit. Although I, it's still tanked. It's because still, although, yeah. although it was number one at the box office, I think it made less than $20 million. And it was huge. And, it was and, very expensive. And this movie. is a Roland Emmerich giganto kind of disaster epic. Let me see if I can the, find the The kind of film he ordinarily makes. Apparently, it's relatively cheap for Roland Emmerich. It was only $100 million, but still, 22 is not a good opening for that. No. Um, also, I just realized something. Should hmm. I review Lady and the Tramp since it debuts on Disney Plus in like a day? Uh, we'll wait till next week. Okay, we'll wait till next yeah. week. I've seen Lady and the Tramp. You can see my review on The Wrap if you can't wait. Um, so yeah, let's start with Midway, mm-hmm. uh, which I saw Whitney didn't. Uh, Midway is a story of the Battle of Midway, which was a huge turning point in World War II. If you're a little hazy on World War II, uh, a lot of shit went down. And uh, on the... <laughs> History. It's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> kind of is. <laughs> uh, so while Hitler was doing horrible things in Europe... Uh, and America was trying to stay the hell out of it, much to our eternal shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, what finally got us into the war was, of course, the Japanese attack in Pearl Harbor. The Japanese attack in Pearl Harbor, there's some debate over how much we knew ahead of time. There was some, like, people said that we kind of predicted it, but we didn't need the warnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it led to enormous devastation. Uh, made it extremely difficult for us to fight on that front. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, the Japanese had all of the advantage yep. against America in World War II. Uh, there were some successful bombing runs and such, but it was not looking good. We didn't have a lot of aircraft carriers. We, we were not doing well. And then the Battle of Midway came along. Um, we, cracked some, uh, we cracked some codes. We predicted accurately where the fleets would be. There were some very brave... Uh, flying in particular from uh, a lot of very famous pilots. And uh, yeah, and we won the Battle of Midway. We, we dealt a huge blow to the Japanese fleet and uh, yeah, turned the tide of the war. It's a big deal. World War II is a very complicated issue. I don't pretend to know every single thing about it. Uh, and I know that it's not as simple as America good, everyone else bad. But uh, in a major bullet point broad stroke, that was Midway. Mm. Uh, which is about appropriate because that's what Roland Emmerich knows as well. I was about well. to say, <laughs> speaking of broad points. Uh, Roland Emmerich's Midway is not entirely about Midway. Midway takes up a big part of it at the end, but it takes us from... Actually, the opening scene is several years before Pearl Harbor. Oh, uh, okay. Patrick Wilson plays a naval intelligence officer who has a brief one-on-one with the Emperor. Okay. Where they talk about how we could avoid a war, mm-hmm. and then we cut to Pearl Harbor. Right. Pearl Harbor happens as quickly and unexpectedly as anyone on the ground would have expected it to, so it's mm-hmm. actually kind of harrowing. Uh, how, does it, how does it compare to the attack of Pearl Harbor in Pearl Harbor? In Michael Bay's Michael Pearl Harbor. Pearl uh, that's Harbor. actually a great comparison. Uh, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, for those who don't remember mm-hmm. it or those who have never bothered to see it because you don't have to because it's not very good. Uh, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor tried to turn Pearl Harbor into Titanic, where it was all about how Pearl Harbor was the worst possible thing that could have happened to this love triangle. Uh, yeah, it was it, it, it was a disaster picture like we were just talking on our uh, our Patreon uh, podcast, Only the Best, about yeah. the movie San Francisco from 1936, about how it was this big love story that was inter- uh, interrupted by a big natural disaster. Right. Uh, Pearl Harbor plays it's a lot not like a, that. Not a natural disaster like Titanic. This was an act of war. Yeah. So it plays differently. It's 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 really yeah. not satisfying in a lot of ways. Also, oh, Josh Hartnett, Ben oh Affleck, and Kate Beckinsale are not good. How many years before they do that with 9-11? Oh, 
It's going to happen. They're going to do that. They're going to have like a love triangle. There's already interrupted. There's by, like, already a script out there. Well, they did. Oh, they did that. They did that. They did that. There was that uh, Robert Pattinson movie. Remember me? And it was the twist. <gasps> You're right. Oh, that's the, right. I hate to ruin this movie that no one oh cared about gosh. and no one talks about. But there was a romance. And then the twist was the oh. building he's in at the end is the World Trade Center. They did it. Oh, man. Oh, I know. I'm so sorry I ruined that movie you were never going to see. Oh, no. I, I mean, it sounds... <laughs> just say, if you're in the audience I'm never going to see it even less. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Oh. Um, but uh, but I digress. Um, let's see. So, how it compares to Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is way more about romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actual attack is very impressive on a technical level. I mean, Roland Emmerich knows how to sh- no, film an action scene. I, I mean, Michael Bay. Michael Bay's on a technical um, level, like, you remove a lot of the terrible human drama that he tries mm-hmm. to interject into it. Mm-hmm. On a technical level, it looks and sounds amazing. Here's the thing. I'm going to say this right now with Midway. From beginning to end, Midway is exquisitely told visually. Mm. Roland Emmerich, more so than almost any other big-budget filmmaker, understands how to frame carnage mm-hmm. it looks better when roland emmerich does it he knows the right angle he knows He's... how to guide your eye he knows how to tell a story mm-hmm. with explosions and ships falling apart he he understands and this is very valuable to me clarity yes it's always clear what's going mm-hmm. on but it's also fucking impressive he finds great <laughs> angles in aerial mm-hmm. dogfights and everything it's really impressive I'm, uh, Midway, I'm going to say this right now. If Midway was a silent movie, we would be singing its praises and calling it a classic. Mm. Unfortunately, there's dialogue and acting. Uh, <laughs> and I mean sound acting. Because well, every time... Said, uh, Patrick Wilson, I like him. Patrick Wilson. Uh, okay, here's some of the cool cast members in it. Patrick Wilson's in this. Woody Harrelson's in this. I think he plays Nimitz. Okay. Um... Aaron Eckhart's in this. Luke Evans is in this. Okay. Nick Jonas is in this. Dennis but, Quaid is in this. He of course, plays, of course. Dennis Quaid just showed up. I'm yeah, sure. he plays Admiral Halsey, and his biggest subplot is about how he had shingles. Um, which I don't care if that's real. You gave it way too much screen time. I did not need to see it in detail. Um, uh, Mandy Moore is in this movie. For God's sake, it's a big, big cast. Of not that big characters. And who's the protagonist? Who is our lead actor? Who's the one who gets the most screen time? Nick Jonas. Ed Screen. Oh, no. Yeah. He's he's another one that was carved off of that that egg sack full of jaw bones that they keep in the Hollywood basement. (laughs) You may remember him as one of the bad guys in Elite of Battle Angel. He was uh, the main bad guy, Ajax, in Deadpool. He uh, He tried to take over... Uh, the Transporter franchise from Jason right. Statham, The Transporter He's, Refueled, which was not a good movie. He has that Sam Worthington quality and that he has oh. no qualities. He, he, I think he's a good villain. I think he's got mm. these weird, sharp, kind of Billy Drago features. Oh, yeah. yeah where like, I think he plays like this broad villain really, really, really well. Here he plays a real-life aviation legend Dick Best. <laughs> Which is exactly, that's a real name. That is exactly the name you want from your cocky flyboy character. Mm. And he indeed is such a, he's right out of the movie Wings. He is cocky mm. and confident and just wants to shove his his plane right up the enemy's butt. <laughs> and he... Which they, oh, you know what? Roland Emmerich did that in Independence Day. He literally did that in Independence Day. He shoved Day a plane Quaid up a spaceship's butt. With Dennis Quaid's brother. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Ed Screen... He's a little obsessed, that guy. If Ed Screen's performance was silent, Mm. and maybe two title cards, because he doesn't need it. 
Uh-huh. He's giving an okay physical performance. His American accent is really, really bad. <laughs> like, really embarrassingly mm. bad. Uh, his character is married to Mandy Moore. Mm. All of their scenes are unconvincing. He has more romantic chemistry uh, with Luke Evans, which actually doesn't surprise me. I think Luke Evans would have romantic chemistry with literally anybody. Yeah, he's just a much. very handsome, likable mm. actor. Uh, he's also playing it up pretty big. Everyone's playing it up pretty big. Mm. Every scene is overwritten. Every line of dialogue is mm. kind of embarrassing. Like in Pearl Harbor, when like the guy who was in tr- responsible for Pearl Harbor not happening sees Pearl Harbor happening, mm. he goes to Patrick Wilson and says, "Patrick, I forget the character's name. Patrick Wilson." You are the greatest naval intelligence officer the Navy has ever had. And whoever replaces me in this job, you make damn sure he listens to you as the bombs are going off. <laughs> You're just like, come the fuck on. You're, you're repenting now? There's more important things at hand at the moment. It's so schmaltzy and contrived. And well, it's... Okay, Pearl Harbor is schmaltzy and contrived in a yeah. bad way. Because they're yeah. clearly trying... Even though it was a couple... Or no, it was like the the... It's a few years after Titanic. Oh yeah, it was like two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah, it was like two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. and um, but that that's clearly the vibe they're going for. This big sort of mm-hmm. romantic special effects epic. Yeah, and Michael Bay can't do that. So he doesn't like, have a heart. Oh, so like, he doesn't, yeah. there's no, there's no. Even in his best movies, there's no real great sensitivity in a Michael like, Bay movie. I, I picture he's like, yeah, do this explosion, do this explosion. Excuse me, sir, your vat has arrived. Oh, good. Oh, it's the frosting. Put some frosting on. There we go. Good. <laughs> Sweet and love. Um. <laughs> Roland Emmerich, I'm not going to call him a sensitive director, but compared to Michael Bay, he do, at least has a little bit of a better uh, handle on humanity. He is a sincere – here's what I, I will say. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a particularly sincere filmmaker, but I think he has a sincere love for melodrama in a way mm-hmm. that Michael yeah, Bay does not. exactly. So it always feels kind of fake when Roland Emmerich does it, but it feels fake in a way that's kind of fun. It, it feels – well, I mean it feels fake, but it feels cinematic. Yeah, it's theatrical yeah, in a feels, way that it we feels, don't yeah. – yeah. And love, as, love for melodrama is a great way to put it. Which is why, again, the movie is so big and so cleanly told mm. that if you just took this, put it in black and white, mm. gave it some of those like old film scratches or whatever like that, took out all the dialogue, added maybe 30 title cards just to keep the plot clear, mm. you've got a really great movie in Midway. But the writing is terrible. Uh, It's all exposition or really ham-fisted, fast-paced. We do not have time to do this in a real believable way. So we're just going to find the most contrived, like, over-the-top way to express every emotion and and thing that happens. Um, So I will say this. There are way worse movies this year. Mm. It's not good. But it is a spectacle, and uh, there are worse things you could do than see it in a theater. Okay. It's also not something I'm going to tell you to run out and go see. I, I have to admit that as the years have passed, even though his films don't necessarily get any better or worse, he's kind of stayed at a pretty steady clip, Roland Emmerich. Mostly, yeah. Most of his um, movies are about at the same level. I mean, his, his best film was White House Down. <laughs> Openly. <laughs> you and I agree yeah. to that. Not everyone else agrees to that, but well, they're everyone, wrong. everyone else is incorrect. I agree. Uh, White House Down is great. His worst film is probably 2012. That one's pretty terrible. 2012 is pretty bad. Uh, um, it, Resurgence is pretty bad. Oh, no, I excuse, like, excuse me, Stonewall is probably uh, his worst no, one. you are 100% correct correct stonewall and i even saw that weird kind of ghostbusters-y kind of 
riff he did in the 80s and oh, Stone's um, Ball is way uh, worse go, than uh, that. Ghost Chase. Ghost Chase. Yeah, Ghostbusters. Uh, 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 Stone Wall's way worse than that. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah but, uh, he's made some real st- he's made some real crap is our point. He, he's made a lot of a lot of crap, but I have to admit that as as time passes and because I'm just so intimately familiar with this guy now, I feel like even if Midway is quite bad, I think I might still enjoy myself. Yeah, it's at not, something this corny. It's not the worst. It's corny, and mm. I think people like corny. I think there's a market for corny. Mm. Um, I don't think it's going to make as I don't think it's as big a yeah. marketplace as they think because they spend a lot of money on it. But I, I no, I think there's an, there's an earnest audience for this. I think it's a it was smart mm. to open this on Veterans Day. Um, yeah, you could do a lot worse mm. than Midway. Uh, you could also do a ton better. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a big mix back. Uh, the movie that everyone expected to not only be number one but probably do like it chapter one numbers was Doctor Sleep, mm-hmm. the sequel to The Shining, and not just the sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, but the sequel to Stephen King's The Shining. Yeah, it's kind of a, a two in one sequel in a lot of ways. So uh, real quick, uh, The Shining, uh, you should see it and read it. The book and movie are good. I, uh, I haven't read it. I've seen. I saw Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film, and I, I don't think much needs to be said about it. It sort of leaked into the culture in a really huge way. There was an action sequence based on The Shining and Ready Player One, for goodness sake. And it is probably the best uh, part of that movie. It's the, it's the least bad part of that <laughs> okay, movie. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but it's, the, it's still pretty bad. Uh, uh, but then uh, Stephen King famously, even though this is actually a, an incredibly terrifying movie, it's constantly topping lists of the scariest movies of all time. And I would probably do uh, the same. Uh, Stephen King famously objected to it because it altered his work. He didn't like that Kubrick was trying to put ghosts into a milieu that he would understand. It's not that. It's, uh, it's... Rather than uh, exploring what Stephen King wrote, which was a, a, essentially a story about alcoholism. Yeah, Stephen King, the story of The Shining, if you've seen it, you'll know it's a story about alcoholism. It's about a writer who's struggling with alcoholism, who is stuck in a confined place with his wife and son, and the isolation compl- combined with his addiction, combined with the external forces of evil, mm. uh, eventually turn him against his family. And in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, uh, he tries to kill his family and he never stops. In Stephen King's book, the big point of contention isn't that like Kubrick didn't put the haunted topiary animals in there and replace mm. them with a hedge maze. It's not that... Kind of improved it, I would say. I, I think yeah. it's an improvement. It's not that in the book he uses a croquet mallet to try to kill his family, whereas in Stanley Kubrick's film he uses an axe. I think the big issue for King is that King himself, and he's talked about it a lot, is a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. I think The Shining is... And we talk a lot about how a lot of Stephen King's stories and books are semi-autobiographical. Well, yeah. they're semi-autobiographical. He's playing off of what he knows, mm-hmm. and... I think The Shining is very personal to Stephen King because ultimately it is about a writer who is afraid that the darkest parts of him will destroy the people he cares about. Mm. And when Stanley Kubrick took that story and said that there's no hope for that writer Mm. and that writer is and was always a monster who should never have been around that wife and child, I think Stephen King took exception to that. Okay. So in his book... He thought of it as more hopeful. And when he finally did write a sequel to The Shining. Kind of recently. It's just like two or three years ago. More I think more than that, but it was with, it was this decade. And uh yeah, he wrote a sequel that was all about young Danny, the little boy who said Red Rum mm-hmm. in the original Shining, and how, much like a lot of people whose parents were alcoholics, he himself grew up to be an alcoholic and experienced many of the same problems that his dad did, but 
But he Dan- also has psychic powers. Yeah, Dan, like a lot of Stephen King children in, in stories, he had psychic powers. Mm-hmm. And he's learning to deal with them, and he's hiding them away, and he's still dealing with the demons, literally and figuratively, of what he experienced at the Overlook Hotel. So Dr. Sleep is a... The book was a sequel to Stephen King's book, but in a movie... Director Mike Flanagan, who is best known for doing The Haunting of Hill House, but also did Gerald's Game and mm. Oculus and a bunch of really good horror movies. Gerald, Gerald's Game and Oculus are both great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of, of Oculus as you are, but Gerald's Game is fucking phenomenal. Mm. O- Oculus is a movie that takes place in one room and somehow manages to get, like, milk it for, like, intergenerational drama. There's it's really good amazing. stuff in There's, it. Like, time travel twists. I think it's pretty clever. I think it breaks off a little bit more than it could chew, but I think it's mm. a, it's, an, it's certainly ambitious, and I respect yeah. it. Um. But uh, so, but in a movie, Mike Flanagan decided that he needs to marry the two because people visually know Kubrick's film. Yeah, and he can't just make a sequel to like the Mick Garris TV miniseries. He's got to like know that people have seen The Shining. So, which, which is awful. It's a lot of <laughs> the, the Mick Garris miniseries. I don't think is it's so bad. I don't think it's that bad, like, but it's ev- not good. Everybody it's looks not. like they don't want to be there. I, like, I, Rebecca with Mornay is like, please, let's just get out. Get, I, get I think Stephen Weber is doing a pretty good job in that movie, but mm-hmm. that's about it. And he's no Jack Nicholson, though. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. But um, So so the movie <laughs> Dr. Sleep is a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's movie, but because Stephen King's book used Stephen King's story as a guideline, the film tries to find a way to marry the two a little bit mm-hmm. thematically. Uh, and they're c- kind of successful, even though the two, the film and the book are about completely different things. Yeah, and I find that very interesting mm-hmm. in the way that he uses this sequel not only as a standalone story about Ewan McGregor, who plays Dan Torrance, uh, struggling with his own substance abuse and mm-hmm. his the significance of himself as a father figure and a person who has the ability to do great good with his gifts, uh, but also someone struggling with the trauma that he experienced from his father and specifically from the demons at the Overlook Hotel. Um, and on top of it all, I find it a really interesting meta-narrative about the different ways we view stories. And within Dr. Sleep, we see that Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining was the way Dan Torrance saw it as a kid. That was his harrowing experience. And as he grows up and as he experiences his own substance abuse, he has a really great speech at an AA meeting where he talks about how I didn't really know my father, but I know that my father struggled with the same things I struggle with. And as I try to find help for this and become a better person, this has actually brought me closer to him. And I see him more as a human being than a monster. And I see that as not just a great character beat for him, but as a storyteller wrestling with different perspectives on the exact same character and tale. And I find that really fascinating filmmaking. I really do. I find it's such an interesting film. I think we're, I I think we're going to be dissecting for a long time. I think it's, it's, it's trying to walk a line, um, which you could say is like some sort of interesting meta narrative or some kind of conversation between how he perceives Stanley Kubrick's film. And if you're familiar with the book, which I'm not, because I haven't read it, Mm. uh, but Stephen King's story, or you could see it as sort of a way of trying to have your cake and eat it too in terms of fandom. Uh, the Shining is a great piece of classic cinema, but it's also leaked its way into sort of the pop vernacular in a, a certain kind of way, yeah. where you can buy you know like sweaters with the the Shining pattern on it now, and yeah. it's, it's become. Really I have one kind of those. Of, it's a nice. Sweater. It's, it's become kind of consumed by pop culture in this interesting sort of way. So if you are going to make a sequel to The Shining, you do have to make sure you have a, like certain iconography in it. Yeah, uh, and it feels a little bit contrived to me. Okay, but uh, okay, I, it doesn't to mm, me, but I can totally see why you'd say that. Yeah. Um, 
because they, well, they, they shout out to it so clearly yeah. that I think we're used to seeing things like mm-hmm. that and expecting the audience mm-hmm. to cheer, but I don't think it's used exclusively for that. No, it's it's not, but it's clearly walking some kind of line. I can um, appreciate that. Uh, like for instance, all it as they're trying to repurpose a lot though for a different kind of story, mm. which I think is a way less intelligent story this time around. It's dealing with addiction, yes, but they're adding all of these weird sort of supernatural wrinkles to the Shining story that it does not need. Uh, for instance, all of the ghosts in the Shining weren't as they were in Kubrick's film this weird kind of subconscious expression of a living place, and more creatures that want to eat you that he is able to psychically store in like a Ghostbusters type ghost vault. <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of a dumb idea to me. There was a kind of interesting moment where they had a villain trapped in a psychic space and we got to see like the ghost trap, like this gigantic box sneaking up behind her, which was kind of, kind yeah, of that funny. Was, that was, I actually um, thought it was creepy, but yeah. I, Here's my thing with that. I, I've, I, you've talked about this before, and I've mm. thought a bit about, you know, how because I feel like you're approaching the new ideas in Doctor Sleep, which I think most of which came from King. In all fairness, no, um, this is yeah, like I'm saying, eighty percent Stephen it, King. It's his yeah. story, is my point. Yeah. Um, all the stuff with this group of psychics who call themselves the True Knot, mm. who uh, are all feeding off of the shine of other people, like yeah. like vampires. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a team of uh, like an army of succubi now, mm-hmm. and, and and incubi. It's men and yeah. women. Yeah, and they're led by Rebecca Ferguson, who mm. is great. She she I hate her character, but she's great. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, but uh, they're they're all like finding people just like Danny Torrance. Mm. And they're sucking them dry and killing them. And there's actually this really horrible sequence where they all, like, ritualistically kill a small child. Yeah, played and by, that's, uh, by Jacob Tremblay yeah. from Room. Yeah, which mm. is just – and you think he's going to be a big deal because it's Jacob Tremblay from mm. Room. But no, it's well, actually they, fucked they, they, up. They just slaughter him. Yeah, yeah it's really fucked up. Um, but um, – that whole bit you're talking, but I, you're seeing that as sort of a contrived element. Mm. I, I'm willing to accept. I'm willing to mm. go I, with the mm-hmm. movie and see where it's headed. But the whole bit about how he stores the demon, the demons from The Shining keep trying to find him because, yeah. and and on some on a literal level, that's just ghosts seeking out this person uh, yeah. they connected to. On a, on a metaphoric and thematic level, that's the ghosts of your past literally coming back for mm. you and putting them in a box is. Danny is at the beginning of the movie. He is struggling with nightmares and his memories of his dad trying to kill him at the Shining and all of his experiences with the ghosts of the Shining, mm. which he cannot talk to his mom about. And he learns how to compartmentalize. He mm. learns how to take the literally that scare, yeah has compartments. Yeah. yeah, he learns how to take you know that trauma mm. that you're experiencing. We're going to take it all. We're just going to put it right here, and then we're just going to leave it there forever and never open that box. Mm. And I find it very telling that as soon as he learns how to do that, the next shot is him as an alcoholic, as an adult. Mm. Because there's a very clear line between not dealing with the trauma you experience as a child mm. and then that leading to big problems later on. I, 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 I see that. I just think it's literalized in a, in a pretty dumb way. I, I don't, uh, it, I don't it, understand because, why that's dumb and not clever. I really don't. Uh, well, because it takes something that was previously scary for kind of how abstract it was and what it was kind of as a, a, a concept and makes it very literal. And I don't, I don't like the idea of literal monsters chasing after him now. Like the the naked woman in the tub is now like another creature. It's an action figure that's chasing him. And uh, all, all of a sudden, the, the Shining, uh, 
which was previously about kind of this abstract idea of an inner demon and how this tainted place can kind of connect with that in an unexpected sort of way, is now about literal physical monsters that want to actually eat you. Right. That is seems like such a disservice to what the original Shining was all about. You could say that, and I don't think you're entirely wrong. And I think that if uh, here's what I will say about Doctor Sleep is I don't think it retroactively hurts the Shining by doing that. Mm. I think that the Shining still works on that abstract level because the rules are not clearly set out even after mm. this. There's a few things that people say, but not everyone actually knows exactly what they're talking about. Yeah, there's but, no, there's no book. Uh, you know, you, you use the word rules, and I think that's what I like about Kubrick's film of yeah. The Shining is that there aren't rules. Not it, really. It, it, the, avoid that, room two three seven. Yeah. that's like the only rule. And, and we don't know why that room. We don't know exactly what happened. We kind of glean these little details, like why does that guy have blood down his face? What was the what the hell was the dog man? Nobody really knows. And uh, and I think because of that, it starts to take on this kind of nightmarish quality. It, it feels really yeah. ethereal, almost ephemeral in a way. And I think that's truer to actual fear. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that – I think I will say this. Hmm. Kubrick's film is scarier than Dr. Sleep. I 100 percent – I honestly yeah, – as, as much as I like Dr. Sleep and I love Dr. Sleep, this hmm. is one of my favorite films of the year uh, – it's not as scary as The Shining. Very few films are. No, well, yeah. I, I would say that in my entire, in all of my travels, <laughs> and I'm talking about ideal scenario, you're in a theater, you're watching it, you're not like on your phone or whatever, you're just experiencing the film the way it's intended. Maybe a handful of films are as scary or scarier than The Shining. <laughs> Maybe. Hmm. Um, and I don't think Dr. Sleep is necessarily going for that. I think Dr. Sleep is using the abstract horror of The Shining, the ephemeral horror of The Shining, mm. And using, frankly, you know, the movie isn't so much about what happened at the Overlook as about what Dan felt hmm. at the Overlook and what Dan went through there and how he is remembering it and how he has dealt with it. And if you want to take it literally, you can and say that there are all these rules now. Or you could say that Dan is a psychic who went through something unbelievably horrible and un unquantifiable as a child and he has done his very best to try to make it make sense and it still mm. fails him mm. and it still makes his life really, really hard and difficult and it's only by embracing the pain that he has gone through that he's able to reach any sort of, I, I hesitate to say catharsis, but at the very least... Some sort of conclusion. Well, well see, if, if the film had sort of stayed with Danny, or Dan. That yeah, what, I, who cares? Um, They're both in prison. Because uh, there's a, a bit like, we have this, this big sort of ungainly opening, and then we cut to several years uh, down the road, and he's been sober for eight years. Mm -hmm. I think that's where the film needs to start. And uh, he has been working, because he has psychic powers. I think powers, you need to see him when he's drunk. I think you need to see him uh, when you, he's you down. Can, you can allude to it. It doesn't need to be shown. Right, um, like, the, this is what happened. That's actually more harrowing if he tells it. We get to see the pain on his face. Uh, but uh, he get, ends up getting a job working in hospice care, end of life care. Yeah. He understands death. He's experienced death. He's been there for it. His dad is a murderer. Uh, and he uh, he killed Dick Halloran. Like, yeah, at least one uh, guy, yeah. He... Uh, he has come to accept that death is part of his life and he's doing it in a really positive way, in a, in a way that's helping him and is cathartic for him, mm -hmm. in a way that is letting him 
find usefulness in death. And, and I think that part of it was really fascinating. All that bit of the hospice yeah, care is all beautiful. This, and I, I wish the whole film had taken place in hospice care. I know and he you kind do. Of, kind of experienced all of do. that. It's fine to have the psychic cat. I like the psychic cat. The psychic cat kicks psychic, ass. The psychic cat is fine. I'm not complaining about the psychic cat. <laughs> but when you have Rebecca Ferguson wearing a goofy-ass hat, drinking ghost steam out of a thermos, you've lost me. <laughs> I, you don't necessarily yeah. lose me for that. Right. I, I, those things are a lot of things are stupid in a vacuum. Mm. Godzilla is stupid in a vacuum, but you watch that original. <laughs> Godzilla is stupid on every level. But no, but I like you watch it. the original film, and when right. they're taking the metaphor really seriously, you can get swept up in it, and you right. can see the harrowing horror of it. Or Shin Godzilla, in which mm. there's a googly-eyed Godzilla in that, mm. but it's all about the way it is contextualized. Yes. And I think Doctor Sleep contextualizes it rather well. Mm. I really like um, this new actor, Kylie Curran. Who plays a young girl who shines just like Danny, and but she's a super shiner. Yeah, she's just really good at it, and uh, it's. I don't think she's treated oh, as some kind of fucking. She's not a chosen one. She's not she's a chosen. Really she's good. not a chosen one. But they do have lines of dialogue. I've never seen power like that before. That's, she has more midi chlorians than any other Jedi in but the past. It's, but unlike that shit, mm-hmm. it's just here's why we're focusing on her yeah. because the true not going after her because she's yummier. Mm. <laughs> that's it. That's it. She, and, she, uh, she's she's got a lot of also, a lot of magic. It's, it's it's tasty. She also has the same psychic library that uh, Damien uh, Damien Lewis had in Dreamcatcher. Right. Uh, uh, when, when they got to the the psychic library, the, the exact same one they had in Dreamcatcher. Now, first of all, it's, no, actually, it's not her psychic library. It's Rebecca Ferguson's library. That, you're right. She's invading Rebecca Ferguson's library. She had, just has a, a filing cabinet wall. Uh, <laughs> It's it's done in a really cool sequence it's of psychic pro- psychic projection, which is like some astral projection sequence, which is actually pretty cool. There's a lot of cool stuff. But there, when right? they got to that sequence, I'm like, oh wait a minute, this is this is like Dreamcatcher. It's way better than Dreamcatcher. I'll say that. True. I'm not comparing it in quality. Dream <laughs> Dreamcatcher is a turd. It's a turd. I love. I love it too. But it's a turd. I agree. Uh, it Doctor Sleep feels a lot like a big sneeze of Stephen King interests, yeah. kind of all mixed together in a new I don't combination. Dis- I don't disagree with that. Mm. I don't disagree with that at all. I all think right. I think this is a film that I think if you accept a lot of the things that Stephen King gets away with, mm. you're going to go with it. Because think about the shit Stephen King gets away with on a regular basis. Think about how many Stephen King stories you've seen where there is for no. Fucking reason, a psychic kid. <laughs> Even in The Shining, he didn't really need it. It could mm-hmm. just be dad going insane trying to kill his family. Yeah. Look at Pet Cemetery. Psychic <laughs> shit happening and a ghost showing up. That, none of that shit's important to the main story. You could have literally done the whole story without it. Mm-hmm. It's just it, Stephen King shit doesn't exist in a vacuum the way that a lot of other horror stories do. Mm-hmm. Most horror stories, the world is normal and then this one horrifying thing happens. And maybe there's a mythology around that one horrifying thing, but there usually isn't a whole unified world of supernatural occurrence unless it's like the Dark the Tower mo- or the Monster Squad. No, the Dark Tower ties it all in. Well, the Dark Tower does yeah. tie it all. Yeah. That's my point. Stephen King has like the system for it, and mm. I think you either accept that or you don't. Um, I'm not saying they're all equally good, but I am just saying I think on some level you're seeing a Stephen King joint. You're accepting there's probably a lot of psychic kids out there mm. if there's one. Yeah, we established in the first one, Dick Halloran. Is mm. also also as a shining. There mm. are other people. I like the idea of Dan encountering a child and becoming the Dick Halloran, where mm. I don't actually know you, mm. but we connect in a way that no one else yeah, ever I, will, and there's at least something I can yeah, impart I, to you I, as a mentor. I, I like I just, that whole bit. I, I just prefer that. Like I, I like to think that uh, those psychics are so like, and this is the impression I got from the signing training. Yeah. This is not just me, like headcanon. That the psychics are so rare. Mm-hmm. 
that none of them really know what the rules are. They're exactly. just sort of kind of exploring this as they go. Yeah. And they don't even all have the same but name then, for it. But yeah, but then we're all of a sudden running into an entire network of psychics that have rules that they've been playing by for centuries. They're not that they complicated. They have vampires rules, all of a sudden. That's not that complicated though. They've over the it's years really, really literal. They've is the learned point. they've learned right. that they can eat each other, which is horrifying. Mm. Uh, and they learn that if they do that, they live longer. But Imagine, it's like, but it's an addictive thing. It's also, not just they're also, vampires, you know. And, well, they're they're not addictive. They just no, they are. They said that they they go through the shakes. They start dying mm. if they don't have it. They need it mm. to go. That's it. It becomes. Well, but it's it, it, it's just a it's a finite resource for them that gives them immortality. Right, but they, they treat they, it like an addiction where they need to get their next fix. And they keep talking about how there's not as much good stuff out there anymore as there used to be. And some people have been doing this for for many centuries, but they're still not they, – they, they, there isn't a connected network like there is in Anne Rice novels where there are – Rules and inner circles. And well, it's true. It doesn't. It's there's no Volturi in this. Yeah, I, I accept that. Like, but, like, yeah. a, like a handful of them have found each other over the centuries and agreed to do horrible things together. Right. And then everyone else is just sort of on their fucking own. Mm. And Dan 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 Torrance even just says like when he meets um, Abra is the name of the young girl. Uh, it's like I've only met like one or two other people, mm. and I think I think honestly he probably only means one because Dick Halloran. There's some implication that maybe his dad has it a little because the the overlook took to him so quickly. Yeah, well that that's the impression you got. Yeah, yeah but like it, even so, it's probably very very small. Well, but again, we're, now we're looking now we're like comparing power meters to these. Characters. I don't, but that's irrelevant though. I'm mm. just saying that like. I'm just saying, I'm I don't. The fact that there are others out there doesn't take mm-hmm. me out of it. The fact that there are bad people out there doesn't mm-hmm. take me out of it. Um, yeah, okay. Canisters of shine is kind of <laughs> silly in a vacuum. I accept that, but you, at some level, it's mm-hmm. like we got to keep it somewhere. What do we do? So we put it in a thing. What do you want? We put it in a thing. I have a thermos of ghost gas. What Why would not? you? What would you? What would be? What would you? What would it be okay to put that in that wouldn't make you giggle? I, w- I wouldn't store it. If you I wouldn't had, want it to be like a, a, human physi- soul. a physical you, thing. If you had a human soul uh-huh. and you were a you were a monster. Okay. And if by eating that soul mm. you could live forever, okay. theoretically, just repeatedly e- eating a soul, mm. but you couldn't eat a soul of everybody. It's like right. certain souls you can eat, mm. but you don't need to eat it all at once, and you have all this left over. So I have like what do you put it in? A piece of soul. Yeah, you have like a piece of someone's soul, like a piece right. of magic. What do you is, is a jar okay with you? Would a jar piss you off? See, this is why I like Kubrick's film. I didn't have to ask questions like this. Okay, that's fine, no, but there, that's not what this movie there no, is. So there are no we're soul not judging canisters. Kubrick's film. We're no, judging Doctor Sleep. No, and I, I feel like Doctor Sleep uh, takes something that was s- s- strong, adult, and. Uh, subtle and makes it really kind of like a clunky action movie. And I don't think it makes it that. I mm, think this movie could, could mm, arguably be that. And right. if you don't, I mean, like, it's, that's fine. it's a sequel to I, that movie. So I, I know I, the comparison is fair. I, I, I think the compa- I think the connection is fair. I think mm. The comparison isn't because this isn't like a Marvel movie mm. where they all have to feel the same. Okay, Shining was its own thing in its own location. But, but they're, from they're more going well out of their way to like get actors that look like the actors from the 1980 film. Well, yeah, I mean, like they're, it's they're about shooting a in the character. same location. They're they're quoting shots. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying they're they're ignoring it. I'm just saying that I feel like this doesn't retroactively hurt The Shining. 
I, I suppose not, but then I know, think it's, then it's, I think it's still not it's, it's still not that good. But that's fine. You yeah. can say that. I think you're, you're you're implying that this ruins The Shining, and I don't think it does. I'm I think, saying it 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 doesn't ruin The Shining. I'm saying it takes ideas from The Shining and adds a lot of stupid shit. Okay, I, I disagree with you, <laughs> but right. I can respect that. Okay. I, just, I I wouldn't have agreed if you were actually saying mm. this retroactively hurts The Shining because I don't mm. think it does. No, but, and that's not what I'm saying. Okay, I, it sounded I'm, like you were, I'm so just, I wanted to. I would have disputed just, that. I'm just saying it's dumb. <laughs> okay, I disagree that it's dumb. Right. I, you want to say it's more contrived? I, I can go with you on All that. Right. But I don't necessarily think it's bad. Mm. I think it's very clever in what it does. I think it's very actually thoughtful and soulful in a lot of what it does. I really admire the way that it works, not just as an individual narrative about addiction and, mm. uh, frankly, adulthood, um, and weaves it into a narrative that has all of these distinct supernatural elements and doesn't play out like any other film of its ilk. Even mm. if you think of it as, oh, well, now there's this interconnected network of mm. psychics. I think that's oversimplifying it. But even if you say that, it doesn't play out like any other... This isn't Underworld. Like, this is totally not playing out like any mm. other horror movie of this stripe. I don't know. I've seen plenty of, of haunting movies where a bunch of ghosts just sort of go wild at the end. That's not what I'm talking mm. about, though. I'm talking about, like, this, you, what you were discussing about how there are more people who have a shine and there are certain mm. understandings about what yeah. is basically a superpower. Like, someone pointed out, I think it was on Bloody Disgusting, that in some respects, like, the closest analog is near dark. And um, I can kind of go with that. I, I see that for, with, like, the Rebecca Ferguson characters, there's a lot of quotations of Near Dark. I've, near, near Dark gains a lot of power just to how filthy it is. Yeah. Uh, this is way cleaner in comparison. If you've never seen Near the, Dark, uh, it was Catherine Bigelow's mm, second movie, mm, and it's all about uh, mm, vampires living in a caravan mm, who've been with each other for hundreds of years, and they just do horrible mm, shit I, I, I outside feel, the system. Yeah. I feel Doctor Sleep is actually a lot more in the tradition of um, something that happens pretty frequently, actually. When okay. uh, a classic horror film uh, just sort of percolates in the consciousness for a while and people never thought to make a sequel about it till many years after the fact. So I think you can put uh, Doctor Sleep in the same matrix as something like Psycho 2. Or, Psycho um, 2 is good, though. I like Psycho 2. I like it better than this. But at the same time... How many people talk about Psycho 2? Okay, fine. I can give it's, you that. It, it is, it is, a, 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 it is, it is a, a pale when compared to the the original. And uh, maybe uh, it's not nearly as bad as The Exorcist 2, but that same idea. Yeah. Uh, Exorcist 2 is horrible. But The Exorcist um, 3 or, is another one that was many years yeah, after the fact. Yeah, or, uh, and was or, revisiting the original from the perspective of uh, one. I think that's the, a great comparison the, the, to The Exorcist the one, 3. I, the one I'm going to compare it to is actually Hannibal. Uh, Ridley, okay. Ridley Scott's Hannibal, a film I actually dislike, but I know some people like it. There are things uh, I like about in, it. In that it's trying to take the original that had kind of leaked into the consciousness, make a sequel kind of after the fact. It is also based on a book from the author. Yep. They they changed some key cast casting uh, member uh, members of the cast. Yeah. Uh, and they make it way more sensational than the original. Yeah. In both the case of The Silence of the Lands and The Shining, those are really uh, funereal movies. They're really kind of downbeat and kind of hard-edged. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas when you look at Hannibal and Dr. Sleep, they're a little bit crazy. And they kind of <laughs> take our love for the original and kind of turn it more into something facing an exploitation movie. Okay, but... <sighs> I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I, I I do. I disagree with your interpretation, mm-hmm. but I do say it. I I really do think it's more it's more appropriately uh, compared to The Exorcist Three, mm-hmm. where uh, the original is 
the foundation on which this new, less universal story is being told, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, The Shining is in many respects the ultimate haunted house movie. It's, that, it's either that or Robert Wise's The Haunting. I think yeah. either one of them is the prototypical haunted house movie. Yeah. Pick, take your pick, I don't care. No, w- um, William Castle's Haunting Hill House. Uh, that's huh. so much more. Uh, I, speaking so of much, sensationalism, that's so much if cheesier. If you're going to go sensational, go for go with William I, Castle. I would say if you're going to go for the sensational version, you go for the Legend of Hell House. But fair enough. No. Um, that, that's a matter of taste. I think all, I think we all can all agree that the big two when we think of what haunted house movies are: mm. Robert Wise's The Haunting and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, and even the The Shining is a hotel, but who gives a shit? No. Uh, but I, I think that you know the author thought that there were interesting things that left to explore. Mm-hmm. They explored them, and I think that the filmmaker, who in the original case was the original author, but uh, in the Exodus 3's case was the original author, mm-hmm. but here it's Mike Flanagan, um, thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And they made an interesting movie that took some weird chances and did some fascinating things visually and has some unique elements and explores the characters in greater depth than we had, in the case of Danny at the very least, um, and a little bit in the case of Dick Halloran. Mm-hmm. Um I really do think that there's a lot here. I think there's a lot to unpack with it. I think it's very unexpected and strange in a lot of ways. I'm willing to go along with it if it seems weird because I feel like it's made so confidently and so with so much sincerity. It doesn't feel like a contrived attempt to milk The Shining for more money. I mm. never get that sense from it. Okay. I never get that sense from it. I get the sense that this is, okay. we had a story to tell. You can disagree That's, with whether or not the story was good, fine. But I don't think this is a cynical cash grab exercise. No. This is, I no, think, I, is I'm a not, genuine I'm not interest. accusing it of that. I've heard mm. people do that. Right. I disagree with that. They're like, yeah. oh, they just recopied The Shining. To, like, no, no that, if they wanted to copy The Shining, play, they would not have. player one. <laughs> yeah, if they wanted to copy The Shining, they totally would have fucking done it. Like, mm. They could have, and it probably would have been okay. But They would have just remade The Shining. They could have remade The Shining. They've done it once before. Who gives shit at this point but uh no i think they made something far more fascinating and unique mm. um and i think this is one that i think we're gonna revisit fans are gonna revisit and people who didn't like it might even revisit and see stuff they didn't see before and maybe like it more or less than they did originally but i think it's too interesting a film mm-hmm. to write off okay so i admire the shit out of that and i really right. emotionally connected to it in a lot of ways um, and, uh, yeah, I love this movie, but yeah, we I, clearly I, disagree. Yeah, I, I think what, what you're talking about makes it an interesting footnote, kind of like Psycho 2. Uh, but it, it's, it, it's kind of a mess of ideas, uh, a lot of them bad. I, uh, okay. The filmmaking is first rate. No, I'm not gonna, not gonna fault any of that. Mike Flanagan knows how to create a mood. There's some good spooky shots in it. Um, especially like when, when the vampires suck out ghost gas, like their eyes start to glow and yeah, there's some really good, good shots of them with the really glowing eerie, eyes. Yeah. Uh, like I said, that astral projection sequence is pretty first, is pretty awesome actually. Yeah, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's just kind of a, a big, cheesy thing where cheese wasn't before i i don't I, i'm not mm. gonna mark it down for doing something different I, it's not, the, not it's not the difference no, no, it's the quality of the idea but that's the thing though is that once you I, I i feel like there's a fundamental judgment for doing something different anyway because you're we're such big fans of the shining and i'm mm-hmm. open to the possibility that much like Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick, there are multiple ways of looking at The Shining right. already, and Dr. Sleep represents another way altogether. Right. And ev- and that's one of the reasons why I think The Shining is fine, even with all this new stuff, is because ultimately the whole film is about a matter of perspective. 
So uh, th- th- that's a fair way to look at it. So I, that's my thing. Mm. So like, by all means, like it a lot less than I do, mm. fine. But just be aware we're going to have this conversation again at the end of the year when it makes my top ten list. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if you're, you're still high on it. Okay, the fair. Oh, I've seen it. I saw it a while ago now, and, so and may, it's, it's, it's still lingering. I, you know, maybe maybe it'll something. I'll realize something and it'll you know, grow you, in my estimation. You, you said but, recently yeah. that you're uh, you're the Joker is growing on you a little bit. Uh, a little. It's not going to make my top ten list or anything, but it, it, I like it more now than I did when I first saw it. These things happen. All right, uh, let's move on because we still have more movies to review. Uh, let's see what we got here. Do you want to hear about divorce? Can I tell you about divorce? <laughs> Do I? <laughs> Do I want to hear about divorce? Have you heard about divorce? Yeah, let's talk about uh, divorce, I guess. Noah Baumbach likes making movies about divorce. Um, Good for him. I, I think Marriage Story is... Uh, I think his first divorce film since The Squid and the Whale, which was 2005. Uh, was it Margaret the Wedding? Oh, yeah. Never mind. Yeah. He makes a lot of films about couples that break up. Yeah, his um, parents but, got divorced. Yeah. He got divorced. It's a very personal subject to yeah. him, as I'm sure he'll say in person. Uh, the Squid and the Whale hit me really hard because that's about the kids and how the divorce is kind of ruining their lives and making uh, the Jesse Eisenberg character very frustratingly slowly realize how much of his own bad behavior is inherited from his father who he previously saw as a good guy and now he has to contend with the fact that not only is his father a bad guy but that he is as well um it's a really emotionally harrowing film it will wreck you i like being wrecked i wanted marriage story to wreck me and it didn't and i'm a little upset about that (laughs) That said, it's quite a fine film. Uh, it, it, <laughs> that is the best review I've seen in Marriage Story yet. It's like, it wanted to destroy me, and it did not. Yeah. Um, uh, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson play a married couple. He is a theater director in New York. He owns his own theater troupe. She is his star actress. Uh, the film opens with them uh, authoring lists of what they love about each other that they're just sort of narrating to the audience. And then we smash cut to a marriage counselor and they are have essentially already decided to get divorced. Mm-hmm. And the marriage counselor has asked them to come up with these lists just to sort of remind them that the marriage wasn't a total failure. There were some good things in it. But they don't read the lists. The lists will come back. Uh, they have an eight-year-old son and... They're trying to be as copacetic as possible at first, but we do realize that a divorce is not a copacetic time. Uh, She moves to Los Angeles, something she's always wanted to do. She becomes an actress in a big TV show. They try to make the relationship work by being bi-coastal, but pretty soon it's clear that lawyers will have to get involved. She hires Laura Dern, who's a star attorney. He hires Ray Liotta, who plays a Ray Liotta type. And... (laughs) Poor really like he he's just sort of like a go-to dickhead now really and I'm sure he's a decent guy in real life I know he's encouraging people to give up smoking good good for him very good for yeah. him uh, but yeah he's uh, just sort of this cutthroat lawyer character and they realize just how much uh, animosity there kind of has always been in their relationship and has never been acknowledged if you've ever been in a relationship this film is gonna have the conversations you always dread to have where you're going to have to dredge up a lot of uncomfortable truths about awkward things that have always existed between you and how that might be poison pass <laughs> pass hard pass no However, thank you no uh, I'm done Noah Bumbach no interest uh, unfortunately and this is why it's not as as sort of emotionally harrowing as I kind of 
was was looking for uh, is that he gets involved a little bit too close in the nitty gritty of it. Now, I understand when you're going through a divorce, this is a huge part of it. And he actually gets a lot of the details right. He goes from sort of a posh New York apartment to a truly dumpy L.A. apartment, a little beige box in all of its uh, vertical slat-blinded glory. You can smell the carpet in these scenes. Yeah, I've lived there. Uh, he goes into a, a, a lawyer. A lot of the uh, dis- like legal discussions between the lawyers take place in just courtroom buildings that are drab locations. And though Bombach is really good about capturing the donut crumbs on the folding table, the just the, the dirt hanging from the clocks, he gets a lot of those little mundane, banal details of the nitty-gritty of some big emotionally harrowing experience correct. Yeah. But I think he gets a little bit lost in the mechanics of it to the point where we're just sort of feeling the stress of these mechanics rather than the way they pertain to sort of the larger emotional story. Mm-hmm. That's, I, that, I think, might be its, its failing if it has one. Uh, mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson is great. Um, she's, she's on a roll right now. Yeah, she's only improved. Jojo. Yeah, Jojo Rabbit. She's really great here. She's like a little bit more energetic. I'm glad that she's finally playing more human roles rather than these, these sort of steely action stars and sarcastic people. Um, Adam Driver is great as always. He plays a really vulnerable character. He sings Sondheim in one scene, which, from what I understand, Noah Baumbach like had this weird fantasy of always doing with Adam Driver. Hmm. This fantasy, uh, Adam Driver, you got to sing Sondheim in one of my movies. What's your next movie about? Divorce, but I'll work in something. <laughs> and, and lo, there it is. Uh, it, I, I do like a lot of those authentic details, but it, I, I don't want to feel like, I don't want to explain this film as if it's a failure because it actually is quite good. Well, it's one of those movies. But it's, it's, I feel like well, the director is capable of so much more. There's, there are these movies, it's so hard to talk about mixed like mixed reactions to movies that are still great. Yeah. Because you end up coming across as a contrarian even if you're praising it. Yeah. And yeah, as a result it's... of being a contrarian, you seem like you're extra down on it. Mm. There's listen, when you have a filmmaker who is I'm not the biggest Noah Baumbach fan by any stretch of the mm. imagination. I, I find him a little hit or miss, mm. and I find that a lot of the films I really do connect to are the ones that other people tend to forget, like Mistress America. I think that movie's great. Mistress America is awesome. Yeah, I wish and people I, talked I, about it more. I love Francis Ha. I think that's like maybe a defining film of the decade in a lot of ways. It, it, it took a while uh, to grow on me. You remember, I remember when we saw that movie together, actually, and yeah, I was yeah. really not feeling it. But over time, I've come to appreciate yeah, but, it. But at the same time, I don't like Greenberg. I think Greenberg is kind of a mess. Uh, the the, the Myerowitz stories is also just sort of I, I a lot of yelling. I, I didn't connect to Squid and the Whale, and I do not blame the movie for that. I blame how specifically targeted it is at people whose parents went through a divorce. Mm. Well, and, I, and, my, I, and my parents did no, when and I, I was get young. It. It's so, yeah. not uncommon at all. It's perfectly fair to make a film that really speaks to that audience, but my parents didn't get a divorce. Mm. It's quirk of fate. You know, I, I I have no control over that, and I wouldn't want them to get divorced just so I could understand the squid and the whale better. <laughs> so I'm in this weird place, yeah. but like, yeah, I think it's so specific, and it's not the kind of specific that makes it universal. It's so specific, it's just specific, right? And as a result, I never really connected to that. Um, and so I, I when you're trying to talk about a film that is great but just doesn't quite do it for you. Mm. 
you have to explain why. Yeah. And once you start explaining why, the bulk it of the feels, conversation comes about the negative so and not I, the positive I, I feel because like you're I, less passionate about the positive. I, I feel like I'm you know, complaining about Marriage Story. And I, I'm well, not it's also hyped. So let's be fair here. We know a lot of people. We follow mm. a lot of critics. We know a lot of critics who are singing the praises of mm. this. And sometimes we respect it fine, but we're just not the people who are going to be the biggest cheerleaders of a film. And mm. As a result, we come across as kind of a downer. Like if you took everybody to your favorite restaurant, like you took all your friends, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, this is the best restaurant ever. And you were like, two and a half stars. <laughs> like you yeah. come across like an asshole, even though you liked it fine, you've just had better sushi somewhere else. Well, I, I, And the better sushi was the squid and the whale. There you go. Uh, this is uh, the same sushi, but um, just a little bit, little bit less spice on it. And, um, and again... Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson give wonderful performances. Noah Baumbach is this kind of material is now second nature to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea, the whole uh, notion of the bi-coastal viewpoints is uh, really expertly handled. Mm-hmm. The, like the sort of the difference between living in New York and living in Los Angeles, the difference of showbiz between the two places, yeah. like sort of living, uh, going to a deli with your cast after you know working on some sort of abstract version of Medea is the New York experience. Going to a big soulless studio and like standing in front of a green screen is the LA experience, and he, I think he kind of gets them both correct. Right. There's even a few funny moments, like uh, where uh, Scarlett Johansson is auditioning for this like science fiction thing, and so she has to wear like different masks because they're going to do something digitally to her face, and she has to hold something that, that's going to be a baby later, but it's mm. just a doll for now. That's no, like Kristen Dunst and mm. uh, Kristen Dunst and um, uh, Wag the dog. Yeah, these yeah, are chips. Like, yeah, we'll just replace it with a baby. We just need something in your arms. These are chips. It's like, can you hold it like that? Well, I'm not holding the baby's head. Yeah, but we'll we'll fix it. It's like this blue thing. She's this pillow she's holding. Yeah. And while she's kind of overwhelmed, this like the guy holding the re- the light reflector is like, yeah, this, this really sucks, huh? And then they cut back to the director. Why is there always a flirty grip? Yeah, it's like. <laughs> So there's like little 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 cute funny bits. There's actually moments of humor in there. Uh, Adam Driver's very very spirited character. Yeah, the characters are too spirited yeah. not to like have a sense of humor. And I appreciate that even though it's not a comedy, it is about real people and real yeah. people do have a lot of different sides to themselves and Noah Baumbach is very sensitive to that. Yeah. So there's a lot of lot of good in this movie. Well, that's good. Um, it, um, it just I I had just have to say I was a little disappointed. Oh, that's fine. Um, I I had the choice. I had time to see one movie in a theater this week, mm-hmm. uh, besides all the other ones. <laughs> I, there was so much opening this week. I had a chance. I had an opportunity. I could either see Marriage Story or Honey Boy, mm-hmm. and for better or worse, I saw Honey Boy. Honey Boy is not getting talked about a lot, which is weird because it's a project that's worth discussing at least. Uh, it is written mm-hmm. by Shia LaBeouf. Mm-hmm. And it's is it kind of, it's all about it's kind autobiographical. Of autobiographical. It's totally autobiographical. Uh, right. The characters' names have been changed. Okay, uh, young Shia is named Otis, but whatever. He's obviously Shia LaBeouf. Mm. The first shot is of uh, Lucas Hedges playing Shia LaBeouf's character, mm-hmm. and it's him like standing in front of a plane that's on fire, <laughs> and wait, staring dead eyed. And then someone off screen like apparently says action. Then mm. he goes no 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 no. And there's an explosion and he gets knocked back. Uh-huh. And it's then like they rather boringly like reconnect him to his wire and they put him back here and then he just sort of stares at the screen and waits for his next cue. <laughs> that was Shia's thing and all like the Transformers things. He always yeah, yelled, yeah. No, 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 no. Was, I don't know That's if that was funny. I don't know if that was an accident or what, but whatever. Mm. Um Shia LaBeouf had 
an abusive dad. Hmm. I did not know this about Shia LaBeouf. And uh, Shia LaBeouf, according to this film, let's take this film as autobiographical, which it clearly is. Mm. And I'm going to take this film kind of at face value and just say this is apparently what happened to Shia LaBeouf. Um, I'm sure he changed things for dramatic purposes, but this is what we've got. This is his, this is his public therapy session. Okay. Uh, Shia LaBeouf's father, as played by Shia LaBeouf, Ooh. Uh, was a former rodeo clown who was a registered sex offender and oh a God. struggling alcoholic uh, who, after, I don't know if he was ever married to his mom, but uh, his mom is living elsewhere. And his dad is a showbiz dad. Oh, geez. And they are living in a shitty motel uh, with a lot of other people who live in shitty motels. And it's fucking miserable. And the only reason his dad is even there isn't because he loves his son and he's supporting his career. It's because his son's the only one who can has any interest in hiring him. Wow, okay. Because the kid needs a chauffeur, the kid needs a father figure on these sets, and dad can't get hired anywhere else because of his record, so his son is literally his boss paying him to be a chauffeur, but the kid also wants his dad to be a dad, and dad cannot fucking handle that at all. It's about hiring your own parent. Yeah. And a lot of it is just at this motel... There's a few things Sounds about... Sounds like beautifully harrowing this it, story. There, yeah. There's really good stuff in this right. movie. I don't think it quite comes together for reasons I'll explain in a minute, but mm. there's really interesting stuff here. This is a very confessional movie in a way that I find a lot of autobiographical films are not. Shia mm. LaBeouf is, to his credit, he, he does two things here which I give mad credit for. He's not afraid to make himself look terrible. Yeah. He's also not afraid to make his father look terrible. And he is not... Oh, so three things. He's also not afraid to make his father a human being. This is him coming to grips with it. Mm -hmm. And so the framing device is... Lucas Hedges, his older Shia LaBeouf, uh, is going through his Hollywood shit. And he gets arrested on a DUI. And he's told, you either go into... uh, You know, uh, what what do you call it? Um, Rehab? Rehab, thank you. (laughs) It's late. You're going to rehab or you're going to jail. So he goes into rehab. And so he's a lot of it is him in rehab trying to figure this out. And Laura San Giacomo, who I haven't seen him forever. Oh, golly, yeah. She plays his psychiatrist, and she is trying to explain to him, okay, yeah, you're an alcoholic. The issue at hand is you have PTSD from that guy being your guardian. He was emotionally and sometimes physically abusive to you, and you adapted to that, and that is maladaptive behavior. And we have to try to find a way to get you out of that. And there's a really great bit where Lucas Hedges says, the only good thing my dad ever gave me, the only useful thing, sorry, my Mm. dad ever gave me was pain. And now you want to take that away? Because he's been using it this whole time. He's been trying to use that to fuel himself and become a better actor. And it's kind of worked, but it's made him a wreck of a human being. And now he's got to fucking deal with that. Um, I admire the shit out of that. That's hard to do. As someone who has gone through therapy and gone through some difficult stuff, as someone who has been diagnosed with PTSD, uh, for for reasons, there's a lot of different reasons to have it, um, that's a fucking lot. And it's a lot to unload in front of people. And at its best, Honey Boy feels like you just walked into Shia LaBeouf's therapy session. 
Okay. And that's fascinating and emotionally harrowing. But it is also, and this is, I think, where the film kind of falls a little flat, kind of only for him. Mm, well, that's that's it's about him. It's about his deal. Mm. And that's fascinating and that's revealing. Mm. But there's only so much that I think we in the audience can get from it because it's basically just him sharing. Yeah. So it doesn't feel again, it's doesn't it's it's specific to the point of being specific, not necessarily being universal, although there are moments yeah. where he touches upon that and it's really great. Mm. Um Shadow's really good in it. The kid's great in it. Uh Noah Jupe is uh, the young version of Shia. There's an amazing scene. This kid, this could be in this kid's demo reel forever. <laughs> he is, um, he's talking to his mom on the phone. His mom is, you never see her, but she's played by Natasha Leon, which is fun. <laughs> um, and uh, he's talking to the mom and dad, Shia LaBeouf, refuses to talk to her. And so the kid is re- relaying messages, mm-hmm. but he's a child actor so he's acting mom. <laughs> he's giving mom's performance. Oh, and then funny. when Shia LaBeouf says, will you tell her all these fucking horrible mm. things you should never fucking tell a child to tell his own mother, mm. he acts that out too. <laughs> it's a great bit. <laughs> anyway, it's a really interesting film. It doesn't mm. entirely come together. It never achieves quote-unquote greatness. I really could have done without the scene where Shia LaBeouf is like telling the ghost of his father, I'm going to make a movie about you. That's just... Unnecessary. We get it. Like that's weird. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's too interesting to to write off. So well, just, I, I you, you could know. say the same thing about Shia LaBeouf himself. Yeah, um, Shia LaBeouf uh, showed a lot of promise. He was a child actor. Uh, if you've ever seen Holes, you saw that he had a lot of talent from early on. I actually, never saw Holes. Holes is quite good. I, I keep hearing yeah, that. Yeah, I need to get around um, to that one of these days. Uh, and yeah, he was uh, choosing a lot of really interesting projects. He was showing a lot of promise. Um, he was in those Transformers movies, which you know, he tried to bring a lot of spirit to them. But yeah, like if if it was like you say it in the movie, he's probably just screaming and running around a lot in those movies. Those movies are not his fault. No, 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 no. no one could possibly blame uh, Shia LaBeouf for those movies. He also got sort of the the blunt end of the fame rifle butt just it slammed him in the jaw there are and very kind few of, child actors who keep yeah. the gig like you don't like grow up and do other jobs who don't go through some really horrible shit in their yeah, 20s it's, some, it's not a it's not an emotionally healthy environment to grow it's up in it's really really not and you can always admire someone like Mara Wilson who comes out on the other side and becomes like a really fascinating author sure. uh, and, and you know like a really sophisticated thinker rather yeah. than just sort of somebody obsessed with the fame machine and there are some people uh, who just who just treat it like a mm. job and they're doing great uh, I've interviewed Chloe Grace Moretz a bunch of times and you know I, yeah, she, well, I know she's having hard times but she seems pretty well put yeah, together she I seems pretty her, healthy you know? like, um, yeah. but yeah Shia LaBeouf uh, did not weather that change very well yeah. uh, some some actors just don't look, look at uh, uh, poor Lindsay Lohan she too is well, like uh, seduced by kind of the dark side of fame, as it were, and well, but the, on the other hand, we think mm. of a lot of those people as living these very charmed childhoods and then mm. not being able to adjust afterwards. This is Shia LaBeouf saying, "My childhood fucking sucked." Yeah, you yeah. thought you saw me in well, those kids' TV shows, and I was like all cute and stuff. It was fucking hell out there. 
I'm, I'm not saying that he was leading a blessed life, but he showed a lot of promise as a performer. Sure. And it wasn't until he started acting out in public and started making like the tabloid headlines mm-hmm. that the public kind of turned on him. Never mind that he's still talented and he still has a capacity for doing a lot of really great things. But his public behavior was so strange and toxic yeah. that a lot of people started writing him off. And I'm glad that he's able to reach a point where he can make something like Honey Boy. Yeah. Uh, because if, if it is his own therapy session, he's working his way through it. He is working his way through it. I, I think this is the work of someone who is mature. Yeah. I, I will say that. It's not necessarily as mature an artist as one could be, but I think it's a mature artistic statement and an impressively open one. Mm. He's not afraid to make himself look bad. Yeah, here. he's not. He's not afraid to show the ugly, shitty parts of therapy and the parts that are kind of humiliating to him. And mm. that's impressive. And I give him a lot of credit for that. So, listen, Honey Boy, it's, it's, I think it's flying a bit under the radar. It's interesting. And it's worth seeking out. Yeah, if you have an interest in Shia LaBeouf, child actors, these kinds of stories about uh, therapy, trauma, it's a pretty good movie. It's not mm. going to make my best of the year list, I think, but it's interesting and it's well made. So, all right, I I did want to see it, but I I missed it. I saw the Noah Baumbach film instead. All right, of course, and and I know you tried really really hard to see the Mistletoe Secret, and it just didn't work out for you. So yeah, I mean this one this is one all the critics were buzzing about. Of course, I know it won uh, the the Palm Door. Uh, it was got a big uh, big award at the Venice. Just tell me the secret. <laughs> just tell me what the secret is, so we can get this over with. Just tell me what the gingerbread secret is. <laughs> Okay, for, first off, first off, context. Uh, there are a lot of Hallmark movies out there. Obviously, there are. There are two. Okay, there's a, more than two. But you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, if you put two Hallmark movies in a closet next to each other, you open the closet and like 18 spill out. It's insane. <laughs> it's weird. It's like wall uh, hangers. There, there's a handful that are, I would say are legitimately good. Two of them mm. are The Mistletoe Inn and The Mistletoe Promise. They're, uh, they're now both now we're ad- at the mistletoe crisis. They're so. both they're both adapted from books by the same author, uh, Robert Paul uh, Richard Paul Evans. Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, and it's my understanding that the adaptations are actually rather unfaithful, but all the better for it. Oh. Um, the Mistletoe Promise is a really cute romantic comedy about two people who uh, don't have like dates for all of their office Christmas stuff, so they agree to be each other's platonic date, and then they fall in love. Okay. So they sort of pretend they're in a, pretend you're in a relationship, mm-hmm. but doing it. But it's rather witty. It's really well okay. acted. It's funny. It would it could have been released theatrically. It would have been fine. That old Hollywood trope that the the uh, the institution of marriage and heteronormative relationships is so strong. Yeah, the institution itself is so strong that even play acting. Is tantamount to being the real thing. Well, no, it's not. And that and, one, and will will the real thing will manifest itself in in a shadow of itself. I, I, I will say this: in in that one, the mm. issue is less that that, and the issue is more that the work system in which we work okay. is so unfairly like leaning in the direction of that traditional family unit, like you're more likely to get a promotion mm. in this movie mm. if you have a family to take care of. Uh-huh. Than if you're a single guy because it seems like you don't need it as much. So the guy's like, okay, well, listen, I'm just. It would really help me out if I had a fiance. Would you mind pretending to be one at a few Christmas parties and we yeah. can say we broke up after Christmas? It's contrived, but it's as contrived as any romantic comedy ever, and it's actually really sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Mistletoe Inn stars the great Alicia Witt, yay, uh, as a young woman who wants to be an author. 
and she goes to a, a writer's retreat where she runs into a guy not realizing she's, he's actually a famous author. He thinks she's also a struggling author who's there. Mm. He's actually there to give a presentation. She thinks he's just some other guy there. Mm. And they end up forming a relationship in which they kind of make each other better writers. It's also kind of sweet, surprisingly well-written, really good chemistry. Basically, what they have that the other Hallmark movies don't have is really rock-solid structure and a really good cast. All right. The Mistletoe Secret has two has one and a half of those things. Mm. Because the structure is fine, and the cast is almost good. But the almost is so catastrophically wrong, <laughs> it, it, it really hurts. So the Mistletoe Secret is uh, it's about a small town... It does a lot of Christmas mm-hmm. stuff. There's business people There's who aren't, aren't Christmassy enough. No, not, not this time. You're doing right. it wrong. They, this time the town is they, failing they, and they need more, they need more uh, uh, tourist revenue. Mm-hmm. And they have reached out to a big travel show saying, hey, come to our town. We do a lot of Christmas stuff. Mm-hmm. And the guy who runs the travel show, the, the host of the travel show, says, yeah, let's do it. And he goes to his ghostwriter, who's actually been doing all the goddamn work, and saying, hey, would you go here and write up some stuff? And he's like, sure, I'll, you know, and then mm. I'll just say I did it. That's fine. It so happens all the time. It's ghostwriting. It happens all the time. It's, it's not actually, flattering. And, it's no, they never good, say it's illegal. Good, good paying gig if you can get it. They never know? say it's illegal. It's it's not exactly honest, but it's not. They never mm. go into a lot of, you know, mm. a lot of negativity about it. Um, And uh, so the guy goes to the small town. He's a bit of a cynical, you know, city guy. Mm. And he is gradually charmed by it. Okay. Fine. Nothing terribly wrong here. We're all doing mm-hmm. great. Uh, and, of course, he meets and falls for uh, an intrepid young woman who runs the, the local ca- mm-hmm. cafe and makes the best damn mistletoe pies in the world. And you know they're going to fall for each other, but you kind of hope they don't because she's played by Kelly Pickler. Oh. <laughs> Kelly Pickler. <coughs> Kelly Pickler That's apparently, my reaction. is apparently on American Idol. Mm. I don't know. If, she, if, she, if she's a great singer, awesome. Uh, she acts like Dolly Parton's accent uh, quit the gig and went off on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, like like when Scott Weiland left Stone Temple Pilots and like tried to get a solo album. It's like Dolly Parton's accent, but not the talent behind it, has just gone off. She has only one way to deliver every single line. She is aggressively Southern, even though the movie takes place in Utah. It is abundantly clear as you're watching this movie that they got who they got, and if she fit the script, great, and if not, we're fucked. And they were fucked. And it seems like she gradually gets less dialogue as the film goes along, <laughs> so they're, like, trying not to... like. In the end of it, when they're like actually like the dude, the, the dude is played by Tyler Hines, who's actually very charming and likable and could totally carry a, a proper theatrically released romantic comedy. He's fine. Okay, he's really talented. Brings a lot of energy to it. I believe him. Mm-hmm. The the scene at the end where it's literally just him and Kelly Pickler, and they're in like this sort of avenue covered in Christmas lights, supposed to be really romantic. Mm-hmm. Everything she says sounds like a robot. With a Dolly Parton accent is saying it. <laughs> and he's trying so fucking hard to make it work. And Can, can and, I tell you an amusing anecdote about my co- co-star, Ben Turpin? <laughs> listen. Ben Turpin's dead. Error, error, <laughs> must recharge battery. Listen. 
a, a, a lot is asked of people in these Hallmark movies. I'll grant you, nothing is of, asked of anyone. There's a lot of people. The actors do a little bit of work. The audience does no work. The, okay, I agree. The audience mm. does no work, and that's most of the appeal. But when the actors put in just a teensy bit of effort, mm. and if the movie has any structure at all, it becomes. I'm just going to say it. A movie. A real movie. The kind of movie you can enjoy and not just veg out to, which I accept for a lot of these, and I enjoy a lot of them for that exact same reason. Kind of hypnotize I'm not, yourself a little bit. I go to it for the same reason. I go to the Friday the 13th sequel. I know exactly what I'm getting. I just want it a slightly different way this time. I'm good. Mm. But these mistletoe films have actually been like pretty well-structured, pretty well-written. The dialogue's actually pretty good. And... Until now, the cast has been really, really good. Okay. Like, they've, they've elevated it. They've gotten really talented people. They've gotten the best Hallmark day players they've got. <laughs> you know, they've got their A team, they've got their B team, and then they have Kelly Pickler, like, right down at the bottom. So I appreciate that, like, okay, put her in a Hallmark movie. Did we have to put her in the good one? <laughs> like, did we? You'd rather they have... A, a higher caliber of actress. I would rather in, in the I would slightly better. One I would rather. I would rather. I mean, here's the deal: if you put Alicia mm. Witten there, then it can't be canonically like part of the missile because he's already been in it. But like, I would have been fine. I would have been fine. Mm. I would have been f- like Lacey Chabert could have done this. This is this is prime Chabert. Like this is this would have been good for Chabert. <laughs> Chabert needed this in her life. But uh, no, 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 no. I don't mean to be too cruel to, to one person, but, like, she's just clearly wrong mm. here. And it's really fucking weird. The rest of the movie is sweet. There's actually a cute little plot device involving, like, this Christmas. Because he's a travel writer, there's actually, like, a Christmas passport thing where you, every time you do something Christmassy in town, you get a little stamp. And you get all your stamps, you get, like, free cocoa or whatever. Oh that God. actually becomes important later. What I universe like, is this? Is this? It's, it's Utah, apparently. <laughs> Oh, oh, I forgot the, no, I forgot the funniest I've, thing. I've been to Utah. I don't remember that kind of stuff. Bringing the entire podcast full circle. Do you know what the name of the small town in Utah is? Bombok, Utah. Close. Hmm. Midway. You gotta be kidding me. I'm not kidding. It's weird. <laughs> it's such, I used, I'm sure it's a coincidence, there, but I bet that you like, hey, wait mid- a minute, we should debut this one on this weekend. <laughs> from Midway to Midway. Right? <laughs> We got all the way there. The critically so, acclaimed story. So let's run it back. Mm. All right. So on the critically acclaimed scale, okay? Mm. We're almost done. We're on the critically acclaimed scale, C minus to C plus, where C is perfectly average. Mm. Whatever. C minus is bad or really bad. Mm. And C plus is good or really good. Mistletoe Secret. Sadly, C minus could have been C plus with a, be- with a better cast. Like even better Hallmark cast. Just saying. Yeah, Moving and this, on. And this is grading on the Hallmark curve. This is grading right? on the Hallmark curve. You notice I'm not saying a lot during this one. I noticed. These, this... I'm going to force you to watch one, at least one of these. <sighs> I'm going to force you to There's one coming up next weekend that's called Right Before Christmas. Because but I... Right is spelled with a W. Because you're supposed to write something before Christmas. Oh my God. Look, I'm very excited. Uh, you and I are writers. Mm. We should watch this. You know, marshmallows aren't that. Nutritious. Oh my God! There's a. But I can eat. I can eat a good marshmallow and appreciate the sugary flavor of it. A Hallmark Christmas movie is a marshmallow with no sugar. Here's another great example of 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 why this one fails. There's Mm. a scene where uh, they're roasting marshmallows. Very Christmassy. It's fine. And the dude's like 
eating the marshmallows. Mm. Kelly Pickler looks like she's never seen a marshmallow before and she doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> she's like walking around with this marshmallow like, I'm not going to eat this. It's, is it an earplug? Yeah, I'm not going to. Mm. I would never eat a marshmallow, even if I knew what it was. Like, I'm not doing that. Anyway, uh, let's see. Honey Boy. Um, I'm, it's not amazing, but I think it's too interesting and too specific and mm. uh, too confessional uh, in a in a really interesting and open way uh, to give it a C. So I'm going to give it a low C plus. I don't think it okay. is a great work of art, but mm. I do admire that it exists. Yeah. Uh, let's see. A marriage story. A marriage story. Um, is like right on the line between a high C and a C plus. Okay. Um, it's it it's doing everything right, and it captures a lot of really kind of. Uh, uh, sympathetic humanity that mm. I really appreciate. Fair enough. Mm. Uh, Doctor Sleep. Mm. I I did not like Doctor Sleep. I'm not going to give it a C minus. I don't think it's okay. a hateable film. Okay. I just think it's got a lot of dumb ideas in it. But like I can, so I can give it a C. Okay, that's um, fair. I, yeah. I, I can handle. If, I, if you give it a C minus, I wouldn't have been shocked. Mm. Uh, I'm going to have a C plus. Uh, I love it. I think the things that Whitney didn't like are all things that I thought were really. Really smart and well done. So okay. we're just very diametrically opposed yeah. to this. But this and Terminator, I wonder what it's going to be next week. It totally divides us. <laughs> uh, let's see what we got here. Oh, and, what, uh, what, what else can I hate? And uh, Midway. Uh, Midway is a C. Oh, Midway is, it's just, it's, the dialogue it's not, is, cl- from what you described, the yeah. dialogue is clunky and dumb, but mm-hmm. it's, again, it looks nice, it's well constructed, it's, it feels retro, it feels like a silent movie, it feels like it was made in that slightly exaggerated yeah. uh, uh, storytelling style, uh, it, but it could have been in a good way, I think if the movie had been even slightly self-aware, mm-hmm. um, like if Roland Emmerich had directed the visual effects sequences, but like, Joe Johnston had directed the dialogue. Like, <laughs> you would have, this would have been actually like a pretty good. Like, is Joe Johnston between like Rocketeer and First Avenger? Like, he knows kind of cheesy World War II kind of stuff yeah, in a good yeah. way. Like, Roland Emmerich just doesn't have an ear for that. So, mm. the bit of a letdown could have actually been really good, but instead, it's just okay. That's a pity. All right. Uh, so, that is Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Critically Acclaimed this week. We love you this week and every other week. Uh, don't forget uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. That has changed. It's different now. It's fun. But, uh, but you, you get them all now. Uh, every, all, all, all in one straight line. All these, all these cool things. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, uh, we'll be back uh, next week with a bunch of reviews. We're going to be reviewing films like Charlie's Angels, which is coming out. Yeah, Elizabeth Banks, Charlie's Angels. Awesome. Very excited about it. Um, Ford versus Ferrari, which is coming out. Or it's Ford v. Ferrari. Why did they drop the S? I think it, like, maybe it's a legal battle. Could be, but, 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 it's, but S, it's literally it's supposed, about a car race. <laughs> if you drop the S, it's supposed to be a legal battle. That's what that means. Yeah. I think Batman v. Superman might have completely fucked legal vernacular. I think you're right. On top of its many sins. <laughs> It ruined legal one, one of the most annoying things it did. I can't believe they did. so mad yeah. about that. Even they said even on set we called it Batman vs. Superman. Then leave the yeah. S in, you dick. Anyway, uh, and also I will be, at least I will be reviewing the documentary Scandalous, which is about a scandalous thing. Of some how, how scandalous is it? I will find out next week. Oh, and Lady and the Tramp. We'll review Lady and the Tramp All next right. week as well. Uh, that is the new live action remake that has debuted on Disney+. Plus. 
which, uh, as of this recording, hasn't launched yet. But, yeah. well, by the time you hear this, it will have. Yeah, yep. And I've seen it already. And, uh, well, you can read my review on The Wrap if you can't wait. But otherwise, mm-hmm. we'll get to it next week. Don't forget to stick around on the channel. We've uh, got upcoming. We've got Canceled Too Soon. We're going to be reviewing Swamp Thing, which only lasted one season, recently canceled in the DC Universe streaming service. Uh, we're going to have more letters episodes. And, again, we're going to be doing a one big list episode a month as chosen by our Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, and you can pick a genre or an era. And Whitney and I will try to unload all of our good taste and expertise and try to recommend a whole bunch of really great films mm-hmm. for you. Uh, so that is it. You can email us letters at critically net for all of your needs. All of them. And any needs. Yeah. We'll... we'll We'll, we'll person, deliver a pizza, I guess. If, I don't know. If, if you write an email saying, hey, could you pick me up at the airport, then we might not get to you on time. We might not get yeah. to you on time. I'm going to warn you about that. Like, make, give us a lot of lead time. That's yeah. really important. And even then, uh, I don't have gas money. Uh, <laughs> but I digress. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Yada, yada, yada. And uh, never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?